0: Before we begin this day, I want to thank you again for inviting me, and it's always a privilege to be here. Um, as I've prepared for this one, there has been a little bit of a heaviness on my heart, and so I need to make a confession to you guys. And so, when you have to make a confession in public, uh, it's embarrassing, and it shows one's weakness and one's failures, but when you're convicted by God's Word, that you need to do this. And so, I have been here for quite a few times now. I don't remember the first time, but it's been some years. I've met a lot of you in other circumstances and places, and you've always been friendly to me. You've always welcomed me. You've always asked about my family. Uh, many of you know of my wife's struggle with MS, and you've always asked of that and tell me you're praying for her, and, and I appreciate that. And periodically, I might see one of you uh, in another place outside of the worship arena, so I have to make this confession. I can't remember all your names. And it's embarrassing. It, it is just embarrassing. And, um, and so I, I try to uh, cover it up. You know, hey, how you doing? Hi, brother. Hi, sister. Uh, you know, uh, good to see you again. With trying to think, God, could you give me a name? All right. And so I, I apologize. I apologize that I, I haven't got those names yet. But there's a second step of embarrassment to that as well. Every once in a while, I think I have the right name. And as soon as I say it, I know I'm wrong. Okay? And that's even a deeper level of confession and embarrassment. Okay? And so I, I, I come before you and uh, I, I ask for your forgiveness. And I pray that God can restore some of my memory. Okay? As I get older, would that be a restorative thing that He might do for me? Uh, because when, when, when you fail to do something you want to do, you, you begin to feel like your value is not as great. Okay, And so our scripture today talks about that, and that's why the conviction came. And so my heartfelt apologies are, are, are there, and so I will attempt to do better and ask God to help me as well. But I also think the lesson of what we need to remember Is really, really important. So let's listen to God's word. Today is Galatians chapter 2 as we continue through that. And we are in verses 11 through 16. Cephas uh, was the Jewish name of Peter. So it's the big guy we're talking about here from the human perspective. But when Cephas or Peter came to Antioch, I, meaning Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentile to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, when your word convicts us, that is a good thing. Because your desire is for us to know you more, to love you more deeply, and to live as you would like us to live, that others may see you. And so when we are corrected by your word, we give thanks. And so may we stand as people prepared once more to hear and receive what you have to say through your word. And may we live that in our lives this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now one of the first questions that I hear from a Chinese scholar who has come here and has limited opportunity in their life to hear anything about the gospel. And, and if they've heard anything, the chances are it's probably been distorted to a significant degree. But if one of them would come to me and say something like this, Ken, what, what do you need to do to become a Christian. I want you to know on one hand that that really excites me because that gives me some indication that God is working in their hearts and they wanna make a response. And I say, that's why I'm here, God. That's what I feel you've called me to do. That's one of the good things that I get in that response. But on the other hand, it's also a reminder that for the overwhelming majority of people in the world, regardless of either how much or how little they profess to know about God, Their initial indication is that to be made right with God, what it means is they are required to do something. What do I have to do to make myself right with God? Galatians chapter 2, the first 10 verses, is a recap of the Jerusalem council of Acts chapter 15, and Doug has been talking about that for the last two weeks. The main issue of the Jerusalem Council was, was this. There was two different ways that people were looking at how one could be made right with God. And so they were coming together, and it was for the first time that the church was gathered to settle an important issue and to talk about what was going on and all that was going to happen. The issue was the day was do Gentile people who say that Jesus is the Messiah and they are now welcomed into the kingdom of God because of that profession of faith? are the Gentiles required to follow the Jewish laws and dietary information and all those things found in the Old Testament, including circumcision. And that was the debate that went on in Acts chapter 15. Now, the Jerusalem council declared that the Gentiles did not have to do that. And if you would read in Acts 15, it was actually a fairly comical thing what they said. They said, why should we expect them to do that when we who are Jews have a hard time ourselves? Even we can't do what we might ask them to do. So no, at Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council says, no, it's not what you do, it's what Christ has done for us. But change and acceptance of change is not easily received in our heads, in our hearts, and even in our lives. My wife grew up in a Roman Catholic church, and they were a firm practicing Roman Catholic family okay so when she introduced me to her father and said here's the man I want to marry he's a Protestant minister it wasn't a really good meeting okay it wasn't really good it took a long time okay Her freshman year of college is when my wife, when she was away, for the first time in her life, had that personal, intimate, life-transforming encounter with Jesus where she said, I now know what he's done for me, and based on his work, I now call myself a follower of Jesus. But practices are hard to break. And so after she made that and began her walk, she would get up on Sunday mornings and she would go to the Protestant church and worship at the early service. It was a church that was influential and the people were there of the change in her life. And when the service was over and done, she would walk out the door and walk down one block and then go to the Roman Catholic church and go to Mass. It was so hard for her to break that which had been instilled in her for such a long time long time so Peter comes to Antioch and Paul says I remember what we did in Jerusalem and now Peter what's going on what happened what are you reverting back to and so in verses 11 and 14 it talks about what it means to be in step with the gospel. But before we look at that, we need to go to verse 16. Verse 16 again is that which Doug has been talking about for the last several weeks, which Doug has been talking about through his all life as a pastor of the significance of the grace of God. The question is how does one become right with God? Or to use a biblical word, how is one justified? And so there was a normal way of thinking in the Jewish community of which mainly the Old Testament and the New Testament was written about and that many, many religions have followed since. The normal way of thinking involved three steps in what it meant to be justified. One, you believe. Two, you do good works. And three, you're saved. And then Paul, he comes to the Jerusalem council and he begins to argue that those three steps are good steps, but you have them out of order. And Paul says, I'm not going to change what the steps are. I'm just going to tell you that I believe what God really wants us to know is a different order, and it's a life-different order. It's a life-changing order. It's a life-rescuing order. And so the order that Paul prescribes is that, one, you believe, two, you are saved, and then, yes, you do good works, you obey the law. Now, if the Jerusalem Post-Gazette would have been there during the Jerusalem Council, if they would have sent their religious beat writer to cover this conference you could imagine that on the back page of the paper is where it would have been found, and they would have said some of the leading uh, followers of Jesus from around the countryside are coming. And they would mention Peter and James and John. And then there's this upstart Paul who used to be named Saul and his friend Barnabas. And they would name Titus and a couple other things. And here's what they're coming to do. They're coming here to kind of make sure that we keep what we've always thought would be true. That's what the argument's going to be. And then if they would have taken a poll, if they would say, call in this number, if you believe that the order is believe, do good works, and you're saved, call this number, and call this number, he said, believe, you're saved, and do good works. The one that says believe, do good works, and saved would have overwhelmingly won the poll of that day. And yet afterwards it would have declared, big upset, change of thinking, God is intervening in a brand new way. The order is different. We believe we are saved and then we obey. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith through Jesus Christ. Not only does that change in order make all the difference in the world, but more importantly, it makes a difference in our hearts. And so we want to look at that. What are two ways that we can have some evidence or some assurance that what we believe in our head has also penetrated our hearts? It affects our hearts in at least these two ways. The first one is the condition of our hearts. If our being made right with God is dependent upon our obedience to the law or how many good works we do then it begs this question how do i know if i've ever ever done enough and so if you've ever asked that question then you need to know is that you're struggling with the order in which the bible is describing right here how do we know if we've ever done enough Obviously, reading God's Scripture and praying would be one of those obediences to the law of God or good works that would be seen in Scripture as something that we ought to do. But the question is, why do we do that? Okay, and why is it there? And then we'd ask, well, 30 minutes a day is good. Why not 40? And if we move to 40, we say, well, that's good. Why not 50? Why not an hour? How do you answer a question like that? And then the moment that I haven't asked that question is, how do I know if I've done or Not what I've done is that I've invited worry and doubt and anxiety and a joyless attitude and a burdensome yoke upon my life as to, to I have to do these things because it's required of me to be justified to be right before God. If reading those scriptures and praying are good works, then why do we do them? The second way our heart is affected is that to believe and obey and be saved is in essence asking the question, who's the beneficiary of our good works? Why are you doing those things? And the only honest answer that we can say if we we think the order is believe, obey, and you're saved, the only honest answer that we can say is, I do these things for me. I do these things because I'm going to get something out of this. I do this because the benefit is going to be mine. I do this because I now know that I have subscribed to a lifestyle that says I need to calculate at the end of every day how many good things I've done. And I hope like a scoreboard at a game that there are more things on the winning side than the losing side so I can go to bed feeling somewhat confident that I've been made right with God. But if I operate in the order of obey, of believe, obey, and then do good works. Or if I, to believe, obey, and do good, believe, save, and do good works. If I operate under that new order of Paul, then the reason why I'm doing things, it's not for me, but it's for somebody else, and it's for the glory of God the condition of our hearts are completely different the questions that we ask are never the same and so we come back to Paul says that we're justified not by the works of the law but by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ Now. There are almost 400,000 Chinese students in the United States right now. The largest input in the last couple years have been undergraduate students who are here. Okay? There have always been the traditional graduate student and visiting scholar, but now there's a large number of undergraduates that have really inflated that number. The undergraduate student from China comes from the new wealth of China. People who have made money in the last 10 to 15 years and have made lots of money. Now, the overwhelming percentage of people in China are still poor, but there is a really, really small number that have made lots and lots and lots of money. And so they can afford to send their children around the world anywhere they want to come to school. Now, here's what I have found out. Here are people that come from the same country. They speak the same language. They eat the same food. They celebrate the same holidays. And yet they are completely different animals. The way that they look at life is so significantly different that when you get them both in one room, it's like they don't even know each other. They, they would look at each other and say, well, you look Chinese and you speak Chinese and obviously you eat Chinese food, but the way that one group thinks and the way that the other group thinks is significantly and completely different. And unfortunately... That even in the church, even in the people sitting in churches around the country and around the world, is that we still struggle with the order of of how one is made right with God. That... It is possible that in churches today, there could be somebody sitting in one pew and one person sitting right beside them, and they can be hearing the same message. They can be reading the same scripture. They can be singing the same songs. They can be praying the same prayer. But one of them says, The order that I believe is right is, uh, I believe I do good works and I'm saved. And the other one says, I believe I am saved and then I do good works. And they're completely different people. Completely different people. And God wants us to know, get through it. Know the right order. Get it set in your mind. And don't forget it. And so over and over and over again through the book of Galatians, Paul says, it's so important. I believe it was Luther who said, this is so important, beat it into their heads. And I say, beat it into mine. Beat it into my head, God. Remind me, I believe, I am saved, I do good works. So, the question is, not only do we believe, but we also live. And so that's where the action comes in. And those are the times and places where I would say almost all of us have an opportunity to people either to challenge us or to affirm us as to... You call yourself a Christian, I'm not so sure what I see here. And so that's what verses 11 through 14 are all about. Paul is saying to Peter, Peter, you forgot the implications of the gospel. I know you know in your head what's true, but Peter, what happened? What happened, Peter? The way you live is not the way you know in your head. Before we go there, we just need to go back here to verse 16, where it talks a little bit about the gospel in this sense. It just says that we believed in Christ Jesus. We believed in Christ Jesus. Five words. Can you think of what what is the simplest way of describing to somebody what you believe in? You know, it's, it's great when we have hour-long conversations with people and we can answer questions and talk to them and, and be challenged and come back. But the reality of it is a lot of our life in conversations, it's just little snippets of things that we hope that God would use and would plant in their heart. You know, when, when we go through all these different evangelistic trainings, which I've been through quite a few of them, evangelism, explosion... Uh, 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 the four spiritual laws, the navigator's cross, the Roman road. They're all great things, all right? but, but they're not deep and full explanations, but they are the truth in nuggets to help, help have God plant in the hearts of people and what they do. And so... If, if we look about that, in one way, the gospel is just, it's just a simple explanation of God's truth. When Wycliffe Bible translators and New Tribes Missions and Frontiers people go to translate the Bible around the world to people who don't even have their language written, and they got to learn that first before they can write God's word, the first verse that they, they translate is John three sixteen, right? The most familiar one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, whoever believes in him shall not die have everlasting life. There is a simple statement of the gospel all right and it's true in Matthew chapter 16 Jesus is with a crowd of people and then disciples and so he talks to the disciples and he says who, who do these people say that I am and they called out different answers and then he looks to Peter and says who do you say I am and Peter responds he says you're the Christ the son of the living God in Mark chapter six, the woman who had a lifetime of an illness that not only kept her physically apart from the people, but emotionally she was outcast from her, her own people as well, when she came and just touched the garment of Jesus. And when Jesus knew that, and he asked, "Who did that?" And she came forward, and, and, she, and, and, and Jesus' response was, "Your faith has made you well." That's it. That was the statement. Later on, in, in Mark chapter 10, blind Bartimaeus was almost hearing the same things when someone says, he says, what do you want? And he says, I want to see. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well. In Luke 23, of the thief on the cross, he goes, Rem- remember me. He said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom." And what was the response? Today, today you'll be with me. Those are just short statements of the gospel. Even in the Old Testament, in Jonah chapter 2, it says salvation belongs to the Lord. Okay, so all the scripture, we got all these just short statements that it says what the gospel is. All right? and, and there's truth in all those things. But, but we know by our experience that the gospel, once we receive that gospel, it, it does something. It changes us. Maybe slower than what God would like it to be, but it does change us. And we begin to look at life a little bit differently. And that we struggle in the sense that I, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know on Sunday I come, but what does it mean for the rest of my life? What happens during Monday through Friday. Okay, what, What's all that for me? And so and we begin to ask those questions and we realize that the gospel shapes us and gives us this bigger, bigger picture of what's going out there. It's like looking through a telescope and we see much further than, than our eyes on their own could ever, ever see and begins to shape us and to form us. So then we begin to ask questions. As Now that I'm a believer, well, what does that mean for the way that I relate to my spouse or how do I raise my kids or why do I do the things that I, why do I have the job that I have and what does God want me to do in this job that I have that would give glory to him or how do I respond to people who have more needs than I have right now not only how do I respond but why do I respond and how about how about when God seems to keep confronting me about my comfort zone and I, I, I feel the urges in my heart that I need to learn to step out of my comfort zone and be more of what God wants me to be. Okay, that's, that's the gospel. It gives us these big, big pictures. Abraham Kuyper was the prime minister of, uh, of the Netherlands in the early 1900s. And in his spare time, he also founded a university, founded a newspaper, and started a new church. Okay? And, and so he said, here's what he says. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of life, of our human experience, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, It's mine! It's mine! And so we know the gospel then helps us, it gets us out of that. It's just, it is more than just a Sunday morning routine, it's a, the gospel penetrates all of my life and it is pushing me out to things that I never ever thought of before. Now, in Pittsburgh, you know the CCO holds the Jubilee Conference every year, and the reason of the, of the whole conference is so that college students can take that, and the theme every year goes around, every square inch trying to motivate Christian students to think in the field of their study and their choices of their life, how is God going to penetrate through them and use them far beyond what they see right now? Well, the thing is, the conference may be for college students, but the idea is for all of us. And the gospel is for all of us. And to be in step with the gospel is to have a telescopic view, a worldview, that is shaped as God wants us to live. But it also gives a microscopic view as well. And that is particularly what we find in 11 through 14. Prior to verse 11, Peter was eating with these Gentiles, something that would not have happened before the Jerusalem council. He was eating and having fellowship and apparently enjoying it as well. And when this circumcision party arrived, which from everything I read were Jewish believers in the Messiah... But we're still holding on to believe, obey, and saved. When they came, we are told that Peter, he drew back and separated himself from the Gentiles. And it tells us then that his heart was now being ruled, and it uses these words by, or these ideas. He was ruled by racism. Racism hypocrisy, and legalism. And Peter had forgotten the gospel. And if Peter can forget the gospel, I can too. I've heard Doug say in sermons many times, and I would guess you have heard it in individual and group conversations, something like this. One of the needs of every person is to know that they are valued. To know that we are valued. It's a need that we have. I also heard another preacher say the reason why all people want to know they are valued is because they don't believe that they are. They want to try to convince themselves and others around them that they're valued. And so we will do almost anything to prove our value or to use the biblical word to prove that we are justified for who we are. In the year 2000, the movie The Patriot came out starring Mel Gibson. He portrayed Benjamin Martin. If you saw it, you remember Benjamin Martin was a better farmer than he was a carpenter, but that's what he did in his life. Okay, it was a time of the American Revolution, and he reluctantly, reluctantly ended up joining the forces to fight the British. And near the end of the movie, when his son dies, and so he's ready to give up. He says, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm, not, I'm going back home. The fight is over in me. Those came to him, and they, and they said, they, were, they tried to encourage him. said, stay the course, Benjamin, they say. He says, justify your son's death. And it was a great part of it. He turns around. He says, "Why do men? Why do men want to justify their death?" It's a great question. The answer is because we all want to be valued. We want some sense of value when we die. We want somebody to say that this person was, was this type of a person. They did those types of things. And, and they were valued in their community, in their family, in their church. And so we, we, we long to have someone say something like that. And so he asked the question and he says, there's no way to get out of it. We all want to do it. And so we want it so badly, we'll look anywhere for it. We'll look to our family. We will justify ourselves through our family. We'll look to our job. We will find justification on the work that we do. We will look for it in our community. We'll look for it in our church. We'll look for it in our workplace. We will look for it until we feel like we have found it. And when we say we have found it, unless it is not found in the work of Jesus Christ, then we can still say, I'm under the old order that I believe, I must feel I need to obey, and then I'm saved and until we find Jesus then we can say I believe I am saved and now I obey. Saint Peter who confessed you're the Christ the son of the living lord forgot the implications that day. The same Peter who ran to the tomb and found that it was empty forgot the gospel that day. The same Peter who was encountered by the resurrected Christ on the beach in the morning and had breakfast of fish. He forgot the gospel. You know, what's interesting is Paul didn't say to Peter, Peter, let's open your Bible. We can find 10 pieces of scripture, I bet, that say don't be a racist. We could probably find 10 pieces of scripture that says don't be a hypocrite. We can probably find tons of scripture that says, don't be a legalist, Peter. But Paul knew that he had to address his heart. He wasn't looking for a reformation of his outward obedience. He was looking for his heart. And his heart was not in step with the gospel. And in reality, what he said was, Peter, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget Jesus our value is not dependent upon the ups and downs of our obedience yes we desire to be obedient out of a heart that says it's for others and for the glory of God yes we need to be obedient but our value is not based on the ups and downs of our obedience Sometimes we forget this. And when we do, our hearts lose their love for Jesus. And we will quickly find we're no longer in step with the gospel. This week, Monday or Tuesday, we're going to read in the paper the NFL power rankings. Okay? The NFL power rankings describe teams and how good they are. If the Steelers are not listed in the first three and four, we'll say it's a biased reporting and move on. But basically the power rankings evaluate how good the team did this past week based upon what they did the previous week and the week before that. And when teams do well, they probably win. And when they win, they rise up in the power rankings. And so we find out that is how those teams find their value. Well, we can thank God our value in his eyes does not go up and down by our performance each week. The gospel is never based on our record. The gospel is based on Christ's record. Now, I can't promise you that I'm gonna remember all your names I can't remember I'm not going to call one of you by a different name than what your parents gave you. But if I have a choice of forgetting your name or forgetting the gospel, please forgive me. I would rather forget your name than forget the gospel. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, remind us every day, every day, of the implications of when we first say, I believe, I know I'm saved. Help me to serve you well. Help me, Lord, to do that in a heartful gratitude. And may we never forget Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.